I want to read some words from Acts chapter 13. The words will be on the screen to see if you haven't to touch anything. Just saying. See, we think of everything around here. We're following our, our 100 days series, our journey. Some of you are doing it in your devotional times. Some of you are doing it in your home groups. And we're joining with other churches around Belfast in, in reading and preaching the same texts together. So listen now for the word of God. I'm going to read from verse 1. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, you can pronounce that differently if you want, uh, Lucius of Serene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, who is also Paul the Apostle. While they were worshipping the Lord, Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, uh, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at, at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John, that's John Mark, was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. Paphos. And there they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Eliamus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul who was called Paul. There's lots of names here that keep changing, isn't there? Then Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Eliamus and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to go blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Amen. Amen. You can imagine Gary and I were fighting over who gets to preach this passage. Let's pray together for a minute, and then we're going to, to step into to these words and see what God has for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word that is timeless, that is true, that is true. And we thank you that just as you spoke to our ancestors in the past, and just as you spoke through your word to those who were called to, to plant and build this church here at Orangefield. You are present with us today and you are speaking to hearts and minds and lives even right now through your word and by your spirit. 
Father, this is a difficult text for us to understand, so, so be gentle with us, I pray. But speak truth and lead us into truth. And this morning, change lives by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today is our anniversary service. I wanted to call it our birthday service, our birthday party, but I wasn't allowed. I was voted down. But technically, an anniversary is the same as a birthday, isn't it? It's our, you know, the church's birthday service, birthday party, because it was born in 1935. And I wanted to ask the question and offer a birthday bookmark to anyone who is brave enough to put their hand up and say they were born in... 1935 as well. Now, I'm aware a lot of our senior members have stayed away today, and that's absolutely right, but is anybody going to be brave and say they were born in 35? Do we have anybody? We might not have this morning. Going, going. If you were, and you're too embarrassed to tell, that's fine. Come and see me. I'll give you a birthday bookmark. You don't want to miss this opportunity. It's a rare once-in-a-lifetime chance. Um, but, But here's the good news. If you were born in 1935, you get to share your birthday with uh, Orangefield Presbyterian Church. You also get to share it with Donald Duck, (laughs) who made his first appearance in 1935, uh, which I thought was pretty incredible. And in 1935, Donald Duck was born, and some people in our congregation, our families were born, and Orangefield Church was born, but it wasn't the only thing happening. Belfast was changing dramatically. The, the urbanization that had happened, the rapid growth in the 19th century in the city center of Belfast that brought the population sky high began to, to move out of the city center, and things called suburbs were being born. And you know, up the Castlereagh Road didn't actually exist. It was greenfield sites. And these people who had moved into the city centre to work in mills and work in industry started moving out so they could have houses with a bit more space around them. And houses were being built, going up the Castlereagh Road, going up different parts of Belfast. And the people who worshipped in the Quiston Presbyterian Church said, we want God's kingdom to flourish as this city grows and we need another church to do it. So they planted Orangefield Presbyterian Church. I think it's an amazing story. It's an incredible story. And it wasn't straightforward either because the world was a difficult place. Stephen's already shared with you that Stalin and Mussolini were, were very much in, in the height of their power and control. Hitler was rising. There was rumors of wars and rumors of wars about to happen. The USA was in depression. And in Belfast itself, there were riots on the streets. The summer of 1935, um, one person quoted and said, in Belfast during 1935, months of rising tension turned into some of the worst rioting in the city since the 1920-22 period. By July, the maze of side streets running between York Street and North Queen Street resounded with the noise of rifle and revolver fire, which the Manchester Guardian describing the situation in the area as something in the nature of a reign of terror. It wasn't that things were flourishing. Things were difficult and things were hard and there was oppression and there was a million reasons not to step out in faith. And yet... The people in McQuiston, called by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, felt they had to plant a church here. 
We've called this sermon Freedom in Christ. We, we could equally have called it Opposition and Opportunity. We could equally have called it Backdrops and Birthing. I quite like Backdrops and Birthing. I think it's, there's something about it. But, but the question I want to hold out this morning, and I think it's really paramount in the text we're about to look at, when, and I mean in a spiritual way, when we experience opposition, when we experience opposition, how much of that is political? And how much of that is, is personality? And how much of that is principalities and powers? How, how, how much of it is because there are different power bases with different agendas is political? How much of it's personality driven just that we, we have different preferences or we don't get on with each other and, and we, we don't like other people and, and we, we object to what they're doing because it's a personality thing? And how much of it is principalities and powers, something spiritual opposing the work that God is doing? Thomas Aquinas in the, uh, I think it was the fourth century, I should have checked that, a long, long time ago, uh, he talked about the, the opposition and the temptation and the opposition to what the church is doing as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you can fire those up on the screen, I think. And you can see a parody there a little bit as well. So the question this morning to hold in your minds, do you believe that when the church is alive and active, there is a force of evil opposing what it is doing, pushing back against what it is doing. It's hard to ask that question without going to um, the godfather of East Belfast himself, C.S. Lewis, and his famous quote that gets used all the time in the Screwtape Letters book, where he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Lewis says, they themselves are equally pleased by both errors and heal the materialist or the magician with the same delight. He says, there is a devil, there is a demonic force in the world, but it is dangerous to deny it completely and it is equally dangerous to be obsessed with it and attribute everything to it. Because some things are the world and some things are of the flesh and then some things, yes, are of the devil. That's what Lewis is saying. Apostle Paul, he writes, our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against principalities and against authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Jesus himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That sense of he will build his church in this world and the gates of hell will try to prevail against it but will not succeed, will not win. On at least 11 different occasions, Jesus directly opposed the devil and the demonic. In situations where they had gained influence over other people. He is the father of lies. He is the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. These are some of the ways that Jesus talks 
about the devil and his dominions. Planting lies in people's minds about who they are and about their self-worth. And we see it so often in society. We see it so often in society. We see it in housing estates where, where young boys grow up being told, this is all you can do. You can't amount to any more than this. This is the only opportunity you have. We see it with young people in terms of self-image who find themselves experiencing anorexia, who find themselves choosing to self-harm because of lies that are planted in their minds about their own identity. He is the father of lies. He is the one, the thief who has come to steal and kill and destroy. Here's a question I've wrestled with for a long time. When the Gospels and when the Bible talk about these things, is that just an ancient way of talking about things that we now, with breakthroughs in science and medicine and information, describe as health and mental health? Is it just ancient language for a modern thing? Is that, is that what it is? I've wrestled with that for a long time. I honestly have. Except there are times in the Gospels when Jesus healed disease and healed sickness. And there are other times when Jesus opposed evil and set people free from the influence of it. And sometimes those things overlap, but often they they don't. And there's a real sense in his ministry and in the ministry that he imparts to his followers. And we see it in Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 10, when Jesus equips his disciples and his followers and sends them out. There's a real sense in Jesus' ministry and the ministry of his followers that when he steps forward into places of pain and places of brokenness and places of darkness, what he is literally doing is pushing darkness backwards. And the ministry that he gives to them to do. I give you authority, he says to them, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal sickness and to cast out the demonic. To step into places and push darkness backwards. Maybe here's a way to think about it. Um, And it's not my illustration. I've, I've pinched it off. Tony Campolo and a few others have used it as well. Coming towards the end of the Second World War, on the, let me get the date, the 6th of June, 1944, the Allied forces, the, the, uh, the Brits, the Americans, the Canadians, others, they, they launched an army onto the Normandy beaches in France, unlike anything the world had seen before. And it is heralded in history that that was the breaking point of the war, that battle. That was the breaking point of the war. That was the moment that everybody knew that victory was won. The war wasn't over. The war would rage for almost another year. In fact, it wasn't until VE Day, the 8th of May, 1945, that there was a formal surrender from the Nazi army. But on the 6th of June, 1944, D-Day 
was the day that the Allies knew the tide had turned and victory was certain. There were still battles to be fought, but the war had been won. Hold that mentality. There were still battles to be fought, but the war had been won. We live in a time between resurrection and return. We live in a time between the cross, where Jesus died and defeated the power of the enemy, defeated sin, defeated death, defeated evil. And he went to the grave and he rose again. The war was won, but there are still battles to be fought. And one day Jesus will come back and there will be a final judgment and then he will make all things new. And there will be no more sickness, no more sin, no more sadness, no more suffering, no more death. But we live in this middle point. The, 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 the victory is certain. The war is won. The cross has spoken. But there are still battles to be fought until that day when Jesus returns and that enemy is put to death completely. Does that make sense? We live in this time between resurrection and return. And we've got to hold that in our minds today. And we've got to hold that in our minds to understand what is happening in this text, in this story. This story of Paul and Barnabas stepping into enemy territory. There is opposition and there is opportunity. We find them at the church in Antioch. That church was really the second largest Christian community in the known world. The first was in Jerusalem. Antioch was the second. Um, and the leaders there were fasting, were praying, were worshiping, were doing what we have been doing all week in our prayer room. And the Holy Spirit came upon them and called out of all the people there, Barnabas and Saul, two men. I'm going to call them Paul because that, that's who he is. It's just easier than you think there's three people here. Barnabas and Paul, the Holy Spirit called them and equipped them. The church laid hands on them and commissioned them and sent them out. And they were led by the Holy Spirit into what was the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. He would embark on three missionary journeys over the course of his life. This was the, him being led into his first missionary journey. Just a question, how... Is the Holy Spirit leading you? And are you aware of that? And are you asking for that? And are you listening for that? The guys went to Cyprus. That's where Barnabas was from. So they, they, they went to Cyprus. They landed in the south of the island. And they started to make their way up north, stopping in each town to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he came and he died for the forgiveness of sins. They, they preached that message in the Jewish synagogues. That's important. They were still ministering primarily to the Jewish communities. And they were finding real favor because lots and lots of the Jews were becoming Christ followers, Christians. They were trusting Jesus as Savior. And as they moved north up the island, they came to Paphos, which was the capital then, and the success of their ministry attracted attention from the, the government that was there. From two individuals particularly. And here we see opportunity and opposition. Here we see how the backdrop's important to understand what has been birthed. The first was the, the Roman proconsul Sergius Polis. 
We're told he was an intelligent, a discerning, a wise man. And he was curious. He had seen and heard about the effect of these preachers coming up the island and and the news of Jesus. And he wanted to hear it for himself. He was curious. So he said, can you guys come and tell me about Jesus? It's kind of a bit of a home run. Do you forget somebody saying, you're a Christian. Tell me about that. It's a great invitation to have. So Sergius calls these guys to come and tell him the gospel. But there was another guy there who was a senior advisor to the Roman proconsul, I think a spad to our government, if you like. Uh, why was that funny? <laughs> um, and this guy was called Bar-Jesus, or Eliamus. He was a sorcerer. Think a little bit less um, Darren Brown. Think a little bit less Harry Potter. There was something much darker going on here. This guy was seeking to gain influence and insight over people in authority using dark forces. Think instead fortune tellers today. Think tarot card readers. Think horoscopes. Think of organizations and orders that exist in secrecy seeking to gain influence over other people and over society. And you're getting close to who this guy was and what he was about. Here's a way to think about it. If it's not of God, and if it's not for God, then who is it of and who is it for? It's a helpful question in discerning where the power base in some of these things lies. I, I would encourage you to be very wary and fearful of these things. Tarot cards, horoscopes, fortune tellers, and organizations and orders that exist in secret. There's something dangerous about them. What we see in the ministry here is something weird and something wonderful. Paul and Barnabas get a chance to talk to these two guys and we see something weird. You can't read this text and not tell me there's something weird in it. Where Eliamas ends up blind. It's weird, isn't it? It's okay to say yes. It's okay to say yes. And there's also something wonderful. I want to show you the weird. I want to show you the wonderful. Eliamas opposes the gospel. You see him, he leans in the pro councils here, don't listen to them. Don't believe them. This is this isn't real. This isn't for you. There's something suspicious here. There's some don't, 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 don't. And, and what you need to see, this is not simply a clash of ideas. There should always be space in church for a clash of ideas. There should always be space for dialogue and debate. Nobody, no one person here has authority on truth, not even me. There's always space to talk about ideas. That's not what this is about. This is a clash of kingdoms. This is a clash of authority. This is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the enemy coming into opposition with one another. It's a very different thing than, I'm not sure about that thing you said, it's a different idea. This is a very different thing. This is a clash of kingdoms and a clash of authority. We see it because look at Paul's response to him in, in verse 10. Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit, looks directly at him, and he says to him, you child of the devil, 
full of all kinds of trickery and deceit. Paul is in no doubt who this guy is and the influence that he is under and the influence he is seeking to exert. He recognizes where his loyalty lies. And he looks at him and he says to him, be quiet. He says to him, you are going to experience temporary blindness. Now, and immediately, Eliamus' sight was gone. He had to reach around, grope around, take somebody by the hand. And that should make you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. And I've been reading all week trying to figure out what's going on here. And here's the best answer I can get. This is not a harsh punishment, condemnation, judgment. This is an invitation to redemption and repentance. Think back to Paul's own conversion. When he's on the road to Damascus, he's persecuting Christians. He is actively throwing Christians in prison. He oversaw the the execution of a Christian, a guy called Stephen. And he's on the road to Damascus, and he has an encounter with Jesus that leaves him temporarily blind. And he's, he's taken to the city, and he's left in his own blindness, talking to God, praying to God, trying to figure out what is going on. And there's a guy called Ananias who has a vision and is told to go to Paul and to lay hands on him and pray for him and set him free from his blindness. And what we see is Paul has an encounter with Jesus. He is temporarily left blind. He has spent time in contemplation on his own that leads to his own repentance and saying, Jesus, you are, you are the Son of God. And then there's a prayer ministry aspect that sets him free from that temporary blindness. And so I can't help but wonder when Paul looks at this guy who is actively opposing the gospel and is speaking out against it, when Paul condemns him with temporary, it's temporary, blindness, is Paul seeking to give him the same opportunity for repentance that he himself had in his own life? And is actually, instead of this being the harshest thing you've ever read, may it actually be an invitation to the kindest thing you've ever seen. I, I don't know. I don't know what happened to Eliamas. I don't know if he repented and gave his life to Jesus. But this I do know. Repentance is key. Repentance is key. We, we don't get to come to God by ourselves. We don't get to get to heaven by ourselves. We don't get to deal with all of our mess and all of our stuff by ourselves. We need to repent and turn to the cross and turn to Jesus and say, I am sorry. Won't you forgive me? Won't you heal me? Won't you fix me? Won't you make me your child? Repentance is absolutely key in this journey. We cannot do it by ourselves. And and if you are someone who either recently or in the past has dabbled in any of of the darker stuff that we've been talking about, the occult, Ouija boards, horoscopes, I want to encourage you to repent of it. 
those things can gain a, a foothold and an influence in your life, I want to encourage you to repent of it. And prayer ministry is an excellent resource in that journey to experience fullness of life. So yeah, there is something weird in this story, but there's also something wonderful as well. In verse 12, what we see is the pro-council believes the message about Jesus, believes the gospel, believes their teaching. He becomes a Christian. It's wonderful. But, but here's the cool thing. Yes, there are signs and wonders and miracles. You know, that is a pretty impressive thing to speak to somebody and see their sight disappear or even better reappear. That's a sign and a wonder. And those things can still happen today. But here's the interesting thing. The pro-council believed not because of the sign, the wonder, the miracle. He believed because of the teaching about Jesus. He believed because of the teaching about Jesus. He believed because of the proclamation of the good news. He believed because of the articulation of the hope of the gospel. He believed because he heard the story of Jesus spoken to him. And for 2,000 years, speaking about Jesus has been the primary way that people have come to see him as Lord and Savior and given their lives to him. Salvation comes through hearing, the Bible tells us. And so we cannot be scared to talk about Jesus with our friends and with our family. Don't ram them down their throats, but in the right moments, take those opportunities to talk about Jesus. And this is a hugely significant moment, and this is where we're going to land. This guy, Sergius Polus, the, the Roman proconsul, he, he's not the first Gentile, the first non-Jew to become a Christian. There's been loads of other ones beforehand. You know, Cornelius is one example. There's, there's loads of other ones. But this is the moment where something shifts in the ministry of the early church. This is the moment where a door opens for ministry to the Gentiles. The very next town that Paul and Barnabas go to, the Jews there reject their message, so they turn and they preach to the Gentiles, and revival breaks out. Revival breaks out, and Paul says, do you know what, from now on, I'm not just going to preach to the Jews, my ministry is going to be to the whole world. I'm going to tell everybody about Jesus, I'm going to tell Gentiles about Jesus. Because I think God has opened a door. The focus of Paul's ministry shifts. And what we see for the rest of Paul's life, on his three missionary journeys, he preaches and hundreds and thousands of people from all kinds of backgrounds give their lives to Jesus. They, they plant churches. They, they see people make decisions to follow Jesus who then go on to become disciples of Jesus who then go on to become leaders who make disciples. This is not just about making a decision to follow Jesus. This is about giving your life to Jesus and being a disciple who makes disciples. Something we write on the front of all of our literature. Churches planted, decisions made, disciples raised up, leaders raised up. In this moment with the Roman pro-council, the promise that God made to Abraham right back in the book of Genesis, where he says to him, through your offspring, 
I am going to bless the whole world. This is the moment that promise comes to fruition. This is the moment that the whole Bible starts to unfold and blossom and spread out from. You and I are here today as followers of Jesus, having heard the gospel and responded to it because of this moment. Because you and I are Gentiles, we're non-Jews as well. Birthed in a moment of spiritual opposition. Is it any wonder that the evil one was so opposed to the pro-council hearing Paul and Barnabas' message? There's loads of things I could say. But I want to finish with this. There is a global health pandemic raging in our world at the minute. And there's a lot of information and there's a lot of misinformation. And I'm not a doctor. I'm not. I'm a theologian. I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't know how this is going to play out. I think it's going to affect a lot of us in very personal ways. And it's going to impact the lives of people we know and love. But we are not called to be fearful. We are not called to be greedy. We are not called to exist solely out of self-interest. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We have a hope that is stronger than death. We exist between resurrection and return, and we believe in a God that is sovereign over us and a God who is present with us. I can see, and you can see on your social media feeds and on the news, all of the ways that the enemy is exploiting this current situation. The rise of fear, the rise of panic, the stockpiling food so there's no food left on the shelves and all of these things. That's not what you and I are called to do. It's not who you and I are called to be. We are called to be a living expression of the love of God in a world that is scared and a world that is hurting. And maybe, just maybe, this could be an opportunity for Christians to reach out to non-Christian friends and say, do you know what? The most common verse in the Bible is do not be afraid for the Lord your God is with you. Can I pray with you? How can I love you? How can I serve you? We have an opportunity here to be the church as the world watches. And we do it as we live between resurrection and return. We are called to step into the darkness and be light through acts of compassion, through prayers, through, through words, through the good news of Jesus. In the promise that even today, even 
today. His promise is true. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, won't you send your Holy Spirit now to to rest upon people in this place who even now are feeling a sense of anxiety and a sense of fear. And minister your peace. Come, Lord, and search our hearts and show us where we have allowed at times evil to gain a foothold in our lives. If there's things you're aware you need to repent of and say sorry for, just take a moment now and say, Lord, forgive me and help me and set me free. Lord, there's a spirit of fear, a spirit sowing lies, running rampant in our society at the minute. And I ask, Lord Jesus, come and allow a double portion of your Holy Spirit to rest upon each person here today that we will have opportunities to minister your peace this week and the weeks ahead to other people. To bless elderly folk in practical ways. To pray with with people who are experiencing hyper-anxiety. Uncle, we want to to acknowledge your presence with us and we want to acknowledge your goodness. We want to acknowledge your power. We want to acknowledge your authority. You are a holy God. And in good times and in bad, we, we, we trust you with our lives and with your church. In Jesus' name, amen.